0: To open this sermon, let's turn to Romans chapter 13, and let me repeat those words to you from a few moments ago. A few weeks ago, we considered labor unions and the revolution in Egypt that's spread itself to other surrounding nations in various ways, and we want to consider what the Bible has to say about authority in all of its spheres, so that we will have God's attitude Toward authority according to the Bible. Amen. There's about ten nations in the Middle East right now that are either scared of a revolution or in a in some stage of one. And we want to defend civil authority, we want to defend the other spheres of authority that are in our lives as well. God established authority and it reflects him. He gave man dominion over his other creatures, and that reflected him. And he's given men dominion over other men, rule over other men, and husbands over wives, and parents over children. And it all reflects him. And when we compromise that rule, we are attacking his ordinance, and we're attacking him. And it's going to work to our judgment. And I fear. I am as cantankerous, as critical, as negative, as independent thinking as anyone in here. But I believe the Bible. I am as rebellious by history and nature as anyone, but I believe the Bible. And when it comes to this subject, it teaches us spheres of authority and it exalts them and it enforces them. And I just want to race through some scriptures showing how God exalts and enforces authority so that we will tremble about speaking against it or meddling with those that speak against it. Because God will judge us. So I read to you the first two verses of Romans 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. That is the government of Rome. Whether it was the highest levels of that government in the city of Rome or the lower levels of that government by appointees in Palestine, which was a province of the Roman Empire. That is the government under consideration, pagan Caesars and their pagan appointees. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever, therefore, resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. I fear for you individually and your families if you're not careful about the spheres of authority God gave. This passage is civil, but civil's the greatest one and we're going to find that the rest of the Bible teaches us obedience to the other four spheres of authority as well. I want us, no matter how Neanderthal we sound or appear, to be scriptural first And last of all. And what God exalts, we exalt. And what God forbids, we forbid. When it comes to authority. I have opinions about what should be done in Washington. And my opinions are no better than Mary Grace's. She is a one-year-old granddaughter. For anyone that's wondering who Mary Grace is. But I have them. Oh, I'm full of them. Just poke me with a pen and it will come rushing out. But I hope before God I can get rid of all that hot air. Right. So that I can humble myself to His Word. I fear if you mess in thought, in word, or deed with authority. You complain about our government. You complain about your husband. Get ready for damnation. That isn't going to hell. That is being troubled in this life. Get ready for trouble because you're fighting God. God gave us our government and God gave us our present president. And God gave you your husband. And God gave you your parents. And God gave you your employer and God gave you your pastor, fight, resent, curse, speak against, you're going to bring damnation upon yourself. We want to submit to God's authority. I want to exalt it and, and, and show how that it's enforced in the Bible. What should we do as godly men? We should ask, and we should be thinking about ourselves. For every authority relationship that you're under, You should make sure that you're totally clean before God, that your thoughts, words, and deeds toward that office and the person in the office reflect God's will and your subordination to Him. You should be defending the office and person to others that might be questioning it or rebelling against it. You should pray for them, asking God to help them and guide them in the way or in truth. For every authority relationship you have under you, You should make sure you're clean before God by your actions reflecting holy sobriety in which God has entrusted to you for caring for those under your authority. You should magnify and enforce your office with the right combination of mercy and truth because that's what you ought to do. Godly men should ask, what should I do? And what you should do is for those authority relationships above you, Submit. Be totally clean before God. Pray for them and defend them to anyone that criticizes them. If you're in authority, make sure that you're conducting yourself as a godly man in the way that you execute that authority. That's what you should do. I greatly fear. I've seen too much of it in my life. Of rebellion. And I know what rebellion got me. When I was younger. I don't want him to bring calamitous damnation upon you. I've recently preached on praying, but your prayers will not be heard if you're opening your mouth or having thoughts in your heart or head against authority in your life. Forget it. You are dealing with God. God is reflected by authority, which is why kings or judges in Israel were called gods. They were called gods because they're like God by the authority their offices have. And so you're fighting against God when you fight against authority and your prayers aren't going to be heard. The angle I want is not to define or explain the authority spheres to you because I've done it before in a series of messages called the Ordinance of Authority. I just want to race through some scriptures and some examples to point out how far God exalts authority and how far He enforces it. Authority reflects Him because His authority is complete, absolute, and final over all His creatures and He has delegated some of that To five spheres. Let's get started with the first one. It should only take us a minute because a few weeks ago I gave you a Wednesday night study that had a picture of an eagle picking bare the bones of a man. And that was taken from Proverbs chapter 30 where it says that if you roll your eyes at your parents, he will send an eagle to pluck out your eyes and eat them. Because God gave fathers and mothers authority over children. God chose to bring you into this world absolutely helpless, dirtying yourself numerous times a day, having to have food shoved in your mouth. And sometimes your cheeks manipulated to get it down because you were so stupid. You wouldn't even eat it. And I was too. But that's how the Lord chose to bring us into the world. He could have brought us in as mature adults. Our mothers would just have larger wombs. We could have popped out at the age of 30. Remember, it's all a choice. We come in helpless under these two great big people called parents, and we owe them obedience, reverence, honor. And I taught you that thoroughly. Very quickly, let's review though, very quickly, corporal punishment or beating with a rod is commanded by God through Solomon. It's not optional. And it causes crying, and the verses that deal with it that say about crying tell you to ignore the crying. Now I know what I'm saying is not politically correct, and I don't really care, because I'm not making this up, it's just Bible Christianity. It's been taught in this nation from the beginning, so that this nation had that that little rhyme about corporal punishment called reading, writing, and arithmetic taught to the tune of a hickory stick. That's an American proverb taken from the Bible. Corporal punishment has always worked. Flogging has been a universal means for maintaining discipline in the home, the military, and schools, and society for a long time. Now, they've ripped that entry out of the modern versions of Britannic Encyclopedia, but if you'll go back to, say, 1913 or so, and read the entry on flogging, it will tell you it's the universal means for maintaining order and discipline in the home, the military, schools, and society. Oh, it well on the workplace too, wouldn't it? Uh, some of those slothful union whiners. Whip them. Before you fired them. But we're dealing with Parents. Corporal punishment, or beating with a rod, is commanded by God through Solomon. We're not talking about damaging their bodies physically. We're talking about damaging their spirit psychologically so that they will learn to humble themselves and obey their parents. The Bible teaches it. How many verses do you need? You shouldn't need any. Look at Proverbs 13:24. It's the first in my long list of verses. I'll just read one. He that spareth his rod hateth his son. It doesn't matter what they teach you in Psychology 101 at the local university or a distant university. They're wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. God has blinded their eyes, so they think we came from monkeys and men ought to go to bed with men. They're very confused. This is the verse. Proverbs 13, 24. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, but he that loveth him chasteneth him betimes. That means early. He will early get after him with a rod to enforce parental authority upon children. It doesn't matter whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. It teaches the same thing. Capital punishment or death was commanded by God through Moses and the civil authority to enforce it on children for a variety of crimes. From cursing their parents from smiting their parents, from disobeying their parents repeatedly and being incorrigible, from setting light by their parents, from mocking their parents with a rolling eyes and a disobedient face. All those things, and I taught you plainly about this recently on a Wednesday evening, were punished by death. Capital punishment. How much do you need to hear about God's exaltation and enforcement of authority? Every father in this room and every mother in this room that has had to struggle with children not obeying you, that is the authority God put in your hands if we lived in a nation that was godly. Now, we don't take any of these things like the one I just mentioned, capital punishment, into our hands as parents because our civil government is the one that should be enforcing that, not dads out on the back forty. Severe capital punishment or death was promised by God Himself on offenders. Look at chapter 20 and verse 20 of the book you're in. Proverbs 20 and verse 20. Now, Solomon was a philosopher, but look at the philosophy He taught by inspiration. It wasn't that children need to be hugged every day. You know, I sort of understand that statement, but you know, why don't, there should be more bumper stickers. Have you spanked your child today? Proverbs 20 and verse 20. But you might get pulled over if you had that on your bumper. Whoso curseth his father or his mother. Now you say, well, once in a while somebody's going to lose their temper and say something bad to their mom and dad. Whoso curseth his father or his mother, his lamp shall be put out in obscure darkness. Your lamp is your life. God's going to put it out in obscure darkness. Get the message. Read my lips. God exalts and enforces authority. And we start with parental authority. It is so important to God that He's told you your life expectancy depends upon it. Ephesians chapter 6, 1 through 3, starting at verse 2. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Wonderful. So we've got negative encouragement or motivation. That is by corporal punishment, capital punishment, obscure darkness for your little lamp, that is your life, or you can live a long and blessed life. And what does it have to do with? Obeying and honoring parents. Think Eagle, raven, plucking eyeballs out and eating them with talons and a big ugly beak. Because that's the picture we saw and that's the picture the Lord wants you to have in Proverbs 30. Let's jump to husbands. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, this is how fast I want to go. And i got to keep moving this fast. The parental honor, the parental position, and parental authority has been well established recently in this church. And I just said enough. That is so contrary. What I just said is entirely contrary to our society. Right? Corporal punishment and capital punishment and severe capital punishment. There's no Geneva Convention in the Bible. You don't need to use full metal jackets in the Bible. Try David sometime with the Ammonites. Go read a text that atheists and scorners and skeptics have railed on for generations. He sent some ambassadors to honor the son of his friend, the king of Ammon. They shaved off their beards and cut their garments close by their buttocks and sent them home in shame. He went and took the Ammonites, and when he took them into possession, he put them on the ground and chopped them in pieces and passed them through a brick kiln. Now how's that for the sweet psalmist of Israel? He was also a man of war, as the Bible describes him, and that's what he did to his enemies. The Geneva Council has never met with anything quite like it. That's what they deserved. Do you know what they did to their children? They passed their children through the fire. I don't want to mess around with your minds by even saying something about the Hebrew, but the Hebrew expression for David passing them through the brick kiln is the exact same language used in the Bible in the Hebrew Masoretic for them passing their children through the fire. Forget that point. It's not worth anything to me. Why did I say it? I don't know. I guess I thought it might be worth something to you. It shouldn't be. What does the Bible say? David, when he was called upon and forced his authority, there was no rising up against David unless you wanted to be chopped in pieces like the Ammonites were. And so his kingdom extended from the Tigris to the Nile. That's why I said there's no Geneva Convention in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, we want to deal with wives for a few minutes. Wives, if you want your prayers to be heard and if you want your children to adore you and to rise up someday and to bless you and to praise you and your husband to do the same, then get down off your high, self-righteous, lazy, selfish, indulgent self and bless your husband and obey your husband and honor your husband. God gave him the rule over you. I didn't pick the word. God did. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. Unto the woman he said, this is because she blew it so badly in Eden, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. I didn't pick the words. Don't resent me. Yeah, but you preach them so intensely. I hope I preach everything in the Bible intensely. I hope I blast the gospel trumpet on everything the Bible says. But I'm sick of our nation. And I'm sick of loudmouthed women and whining women and complaining women and selfish women that don't think their husbands do enough for them, love them enough. Blah, 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 blah. Then they wonder why their life is turned upside down. It's very simple. Two plus two equals four. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. You'll receive to yourselves damnation. Learn your place. God created you for a man. He didn't create the man for you. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 9. Learn your place. That's what you were created for. That's why when you popped out and the doctor said, it's a girl, your future was described for you already in the Bible. And do you know these words? Your desire shall be to your husband. Do you know where they're used next for you to get an understanding of how weighty they are? They're used next in chapter 4 when God said to Cain, his desire shall be to you. And that was the loss of Abel's life. Abel begged for his life. And Cain killed him. Same words in chapter 4. You're going to have desires to do this and to do that. I'm sure you've got a desire for some romantic hero to waste all of his time listening to you talk and to search the recesses of your tiny little heart and try to figure out what's there, but he doesn't have time to do that. He may not have an interest to do that, and who cares if he does it or not? Submit. And don't whine about him. And don't complain about them. I preach to husbands at other times. I will not do it in this message. We're talking about authority and God's exaltation of it and how He describes it. Your desire shall be to your husband and he'll rule over you. The Bible uses words like submit. That means to get rid of your will and obey Him whatever He wants you to do or be as a wife. It says to reverence your husband, Ephesians chapter five and verse 33. If there's anybody in your life that ought to be called reverend, it's not your pastor, it's your husband. Jonathan, I hope it worked tomorrow. you get an email saying, Reverend Jonathan, let the wife see that she reverence her husband ephesians 5 thirty three if you badmouth your husband or ever present him in a bad light, you are not reverencing your husband. It's going to come around, or it already has come around, and it's going to come around some more. The Bible says that you are in subjection to your husband, and that you are to fear your husband, and that calling him Lord is an appropriate title for him. Look at First Peter chapter 3 with me. You know these things. I don't have anything new. I have a reminder so that we do not get corrupted by the world around us, including the Christian world. I'm not exaggerating it. I'm just going to pick on one side of it. Do civil rulers have a duty to God to treat their citizens a certain way? Of course. Do masters have a duty before God to treat their employees a certain way? Yes, they do. Do husbands. Must husbands love their wives and be not bitter against them? Yes. But that is not for right now. Right now we want the exaltation and enforcement of authority. And so we're going to deal with each segment of society that is under authority. We've already dealt with children without talking about what kind of a father and mother they should have because that would so confuse your minds for me to be preaching out of both sides of my mouth at the same time. You wouldn't grasp it. The lesson that I want to give. You know that we preach all that. And for every man that's a father that attended a men's meeting about four months ago, you know that I'm just as ferocious on you towards your children, right. as I just was on the children towards you. First Peter chapter 3, Likewise ye wise, verse 1, be in subjection. Subjection. That sounds like I've got someone over me. That sounds like I've got someone telling me what to do. That sounds like someone telling me the way it's going to be. That sounds like someone saying, if I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Yes, it is. You're in subjection. Likewise, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands. That's verse one. Verse two, while they behold your chaste conversation, coupled with fear, you're to fear your husband. In the fear the way that you fear God, and the way you fear your father, and the way you fear your master, you're to fear your husband. You're not you do not want to displease him. You want to please that man that God put over you, and the powers that be are the ones you have right now. It doesn't matter if you were stupid or wise. When you picked your husband, it's the one you've got. God could have overruled your stupidity and given you a better husband. God could have kept you from using your wisdom and given you a pitiful husband for a lesson for your life. It doesn't matter how you got your husband. He's your husband. He's the power that is. And you're to treat him this way. It says in verse 5 that after this manner, in the old time, the holy women... Also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Sarah had to root up her family, take them out of school, pack up all her stuff, and wander for the rest of her life. About 60 years. She never got to have a house again. She had to live in a tent. She had to wander around in circles. Your life isn't that bad. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him... Lord, whose daughters ye are as long as ye do well and are not afraid with any amazement. There's fear again. It's just the fear should not cause you to be stupefied in your mind so that you don't know what you ought to do in situations. You should obey God over your husband, but we're not even dealing with that here. We're dealing with you obeying your husband, fearing him and being in subjection to him, calling him Lord and adorning yourself with that attitude and that spirit that every one of us can see and know about you. Because all we have to do is watch a little bit and listen a little bit and we find out how much you reverence your husband. And see, if we know, the angels know. And if the angels know, God knows. And if the angels and God knows, it's trouble for you. He's going to tear your life up. Keep yapping. He's going to tear your life up. What I want to do is exalt the office of husband. Husbands have duties toward their wives, but I'm not preaching that right now. I want to exalt... I want to to show you how God enforces women to be subject subject to their husbands. You know, God made the anatomy of a girl different than the anatomy of a guy. Girls have a little something called a hymen that men don't have. And the reason for that is so that every father could have the proofs of virginity of his daughters, and every husband could get from his father-in-law the tokens of virginity to know that he married a virgin. And if at any time the husband decided that maybe he didn't have a virgin that he married. He could say that she wasn't a virgin. And if the father couldn't produce the tokens of virginity, she was stoned to death. See, guys don't have anything like a hymen. Because a husband doesn't owe his sexual purity to his wife. A husband owes his sexual purity... To God. And that's why the guys have a little something that was taken off in circumcision because it reflected the covenant that they had with God and it didn't happen with the wives. It was just the males of Israel. But the point I want to make is God protecting husbands against unfaithful wives. Girls get pregnant. Guys don't. Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law... Became pregnant. Now it was Judah that was the great sinner in the matter. The greater sinner than Tamar. But girls get pregnant and exposes them for fornication or for adultery. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 11 that if two men are fighting and the wife of one man approaches and grabs the other man by his secrets, her hand is to be cut off and thine eye shall not pity her. Now that's just, that's severe. You know, you would think, here's a woman trying to help her husband in a fight, but if she touches another man's secrets with the best of motives in the world, the Bible says, cut off her hand and don't pity her. Now, how's that? This is the Word of God. Do you read the whole book? Or have you just settled in John chapter 3 and you think that's the whole Bible? This is the Bible. How about Numbers chapter 20, Numbers chapter 5 and about 20 verses long? It's the test of jealousy. If a man went on a business trip and came home and just got nervous that maybe his wife had played around while he was gone, the Bible says very specifically in those 20 verses there is no evidence that she has been wrong. He just gets jealous. Jealousy on the part of a husband is an okay thing in the Bible. Jealousy on the part of God toward us is an okay thing. That man could take his wife down to the priest. He would call an oath upon her and give her a potion to drink, and if she had messed around while he was gone, or while he wasn't gone, she would rot in her crotch right there on the spot. If she was innocent and had gone through that ordeal while she was innocent and pure and faithful to her husband, she would go home and conceive a child. That's my God. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Bible defending marriage from the husband's standpoint. You say, I didn't know all that was in the Bible. All that's in the Bible. Do you read the whole Bible? I just want to ask you, do you read the whole thing? Or are you still working through our daily bread? Sorry. That doesn't really get into passages like that. You know, I never got any of that in my Bible story book. And I never heard it in Sunday school. But it's true. Right, right. Girls ought to be terrified about losing their virginity. Ferocious about it and their fathers ought to be twice as terrified and twice as ferocious because in the Bible it's primarily their job. It's the father's job to protect his daughters. You don't let your daughter Dinah go out to the Haywood Mall to speak with the girls of the world because she's going to end up running into some little boy out there and being seduced into fornication. That's what happened to Dinah. And you know, you should understand Simeon and Levi. They were righteously indignant. They just didn't keep their father's will when they killed all the inhabitants of Shechem for messing with their daughter because it was folly that was done in Israel. Have you read the Bible? If you don't have a token of virginity for your daughters when they get married, you have failed as a father. Keep your daughter out of situations where she could get into trouble. It's not good enough for you just to be teaching her, no, 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 no. A girl ought to be learning, yes, 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 yes. You just never give her the chance to put it into practice until she's married. Right. I don't have time to explain that to you, the difference. If you want to just work on your nose, it's, it's, it's many girls that never get over the nose later. Masters and servants. Look at Exodus chapter 21. Authority. We want to exalt it. We want to see how the Bible enforced it. Anybody that is righteous in this audience, whether you're in my presence or you listen to this later, if you're righteous, you understand everything I just said and you're not going to make me an offender for a word. Right. You're going to understand that there's a whole body of truth that I'm not preaching right now, and that's how husbands should take care of their wives. I'm just not teaching that right now. <clears throat> Right now I want to exalt authority. And I thank God for making His word plain enough. Exodus chapter 21 and verse 20. You've heard this many times before, those of you who have been here a long time. If a man smite his servant or his maid with a rod and he die under his hand, he shall be surely punished. Notwithstanding, if he continue a day or two, he shall not be punished. For he is his money. God made a distinction right here of economics that masters typically, generally and when we say generally that's the rule do not destroy their assets so if they have a servant that is a faithful servant, a good servant, a hard working servant they're not going to stand there and beat them to death and if they do beat them to death on the spot they were to be punished for it because that was a crime but if they beat them and he died several days later no punishment Because the Lord viewed it that servants are an asset and if they're making their master money, the master isn't going to kill them. Because he is his money. Now what do we do when we bring that to the collective bargaining table? Management would like to offer the local 431 that in the future... If you don't get your job done on time, we're going to beat you. If you die within 24 hours, we'll take responsibility for it and turn ourselves into the police. If it takes you three days, it's your tough luck. You should have met your quota. A faithful, punctual, respectful, hardworking servant is never treated that way. You say, well, there are some wicked men, and the sun might not shine tomorrow. And there are some wicked parents, and there are some wicked kings. But that does not impact how we obey authority. Right Right now, I want to talk about the authority God gave masters. In Exodus 21, back up a few verses, verses 4 through 7, a man's got himself a bond slave, a male. He bought at the slave market. He's he's brought him home. He's given him a wife because he needs some more slaves. You can understand that. And this man and his wife have had little slaves. And when it's time for the slave to go out, he's got him for seven years. He says, slave, you're welcome to go. But the slave says, I love my wife and my children. I want to stay and be your slave for another 50 years. I want to retire here. Maybe get a gold watch as your slave. Then the slave was to stay there. And he could stay there with his wife and his children that he acquired himself as his assets during his stay with his master. But he's got to stay to have them. This is the Lord. If you want the liberty to go be free, the things that your master gave you, they don't go with you. Y'all, I know, I'm a caveman. I'm sitting around a fire on my haunches with a loincloth looking at my boomerang, waiting to go get a rabbit for lunch. I sound like a caveman, but this is the Bible. Amen. So he'd go over to the doorpost, and they'd pull out his lobe, and he'd get his ear pierced with an awl. It was a big hole. And that man was a servant to that master forever. The Bible says that we're to honor masters. It says we're su- supposed to obey them. Let's turn to Ephesians Chapter 6, it doesn't matter what testament you're in. It just depends which passage you want to pick. Right. The New Testament is full of information about masters and servants. Bond servants and free servants. What we would call slaves or employees. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, servants, be obedient. I just want to emphasize the words that God gave us so that we will have in our minds the level of emphasis God put on authority. Servants. Be obedient. Does it tell them to run away? Does it tell them to find the underground railroad and head for the north? Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. In singleness of your heart as unto Christ, have one real motive that guides you each day in obeying your master, and that is you're serving Christ this way. How does a man end up being the slave of another man? By God's providence in his life. Right. The powers that be are ordained of God. For that relationship to occur, God arranged that in the million of options that he had for that man's life. He ends up being a slave at this age in this country and locale with local ordinances to this particular boss doing this particular work. All that's arranged by God. Right. So you're doing it as unto Christ. Because the governor of the universe has put you in that situation. Do it with a single heart. I wanted you to get the words obedient and fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. I wish I could go back and be an employee over again. I would do some more fearing and trembling. Verse 6, don't do it with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. What's the will of God from the heart? Fear and trembling and obedience to a master in the flesh. Because God has arranged that. It's one of the five spheres of authority. First one you meet with is parents when you're born. Then you get married, women, and you meet a husband. Then you go get a job, men, and you're under a master, and that's the one we're dealing with. Verse 7, with goodwill, you're not begrudging this master, you're not resenting Him. You're not hating Him. With goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. You're letting your, your conscience toward God and your fear of God and your love of God override all your emotions so that you want to do goodwill. You want this master. I want Master Smith to make a lot of money. I want him to have it easy. I'm going to help him with the rest of the servants. Or the branch manager. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Those are the good things that you're supposed to do, and God will take care of you. Amen. Look at First Timothy chapter 6. Well, surely, surely if your boss is a Christian, then you're going to get some liberties and you don't have to treat them with so much fear and trembling. Surely. Well, let's read verse 1 of 1 Timothy 6. This is what Paul told Timothy to preach, and it's why I preach it. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. Not resentment, not belittling them, but let as many servants as are under the yoke. That is someone who's a bond servant. He's in bondage. He's under a yoke of servitude. He's a slave. Let him honor his master with all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. This is why it's important Because this is the doctrine of God. And if we don't practice this, we give occasion for Christianity to be blasphemed. Because we aren't the hardest working, most faithful employees on the planet. We should be. Verse 2, And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren. See, there's there's an automatic, instinctive aspect of sin in our nature that wants us to despise someone in authority over us. And we don't do it out of conscience toward God because we're serving Christ. But now, if our boss is a believer, then we should be able to get away with a little bit more because after all, we're both peers in the kingdom of heaven. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit so if your boss is a converted Christian, and he might even be a church member with you, it doesn't give you any more liberty. You still owe him all honor. This is the Word of God. This is the Word of God that preachers are supposed to preach. Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, exhort servants, verse 9, to be obedient to their own masters. There's obey again. And to please them well in all things. How's that for a motive... For the job. I mean, how's that for a description of your job tomorrow? To please them well in all things. It's not just to get your job done. It's not to begrudge it. It's not to despise them in your heart. Well, I did it. That's not good enough. To please them well in all things. And bosses love a cheerful employee. This is the Bible. Titus 2.9 Not answering again. They don't need your help. Don't answer again when they tell you to do something. Don't complain or whine when they tell you they've got to postpone something that they had planned to do. Not purloining. Not small thefts from the company. By surfing the internet while you're on the clock. Or calling home. Or shooting emails around. But showing all good fidelity. Be totally trustworthy on the job that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Do you see that this, these points that I am making is how we adorn the doctrine of God? Right. The God of heaven, Jehovah, the almighty God of Abraham. This is how we adorn his doctrine. We live with this kind of attitude toward parents, husbands, masters. What if you have a froward boss, I've been there too many times. First Peter 2.18, a froward boss just gives you an opportunity to be a real Christian. If you have a good and gentle boss, you don't have the opportunity to show that you're a real Christian. You need a froward boss where you can humble yourself to someone who is who is obnoxious, naughty, wicked, and evil in their treatment of you. that's what froward means and you do it out of conscience toward God it's all in first Peter chapter two, and you do it the way Jesus Christ went to the cross because in first Peter two verses 18 through 22 it's all about being a good employee or being a good servant and it transitions into for even Christ himself when he was reviled reviled not again right when he was threatened he didn't threaten back and oh he could have but he didn't he went as a lamb to the slaughter and that's the way we're to go you know if you don't like your job quit but give him a respectful notice. I love the employees that give a notice beyond what is expected. And watch how God takes care of them when they do leave a job. Let's go to Kings. Look at Exodus chapter 22 and verse 28. Exodus 22. When God wrote the Constitution for a nation... These were its points. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. Thou shalt not revile the gods. Does that mean you can't make fun of Baal? When Exodus 22:28 says, Thou shalt not revile the gods, does that mean that Elijah was wrong when he made fun of Baal and Baal's prophets? No, because the rest of the verse explains it. Nor curse the ruler of thy people. The rulers, whether they were judges or kings, whether they were priests or prophets, that oversaw Israel civilly, and I'm dealing with civil authority, called gods. Don't revile them. In Ecclesiastes chapter 8, it tells us the reason why we obey the king. It's because of the oath of God. Citizenship should have an oath of God. And as far as America is gone, we still have an oath of citizenship. And we still take an oath in the name of God. We still use a Bible for taking that oath. But in Ecclesiastes 8, it says, I counsel thee, in verse 2, to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard of the oath of God. We obey our government because God put it there. And in order to be followers of God, we have to obey that authority. And it's an oath we make. You know, the kings came in and left. God would raise up a king and put down a king over Israel. Some were good, some were bad. It didn't matter. Still the king. You still obeyed. It does not matter what a government does. It never has an influence on how you obey them or not. The Roman government was the one that's described in the New Testament. It's when a government tries to keep you from doing what God has commanded you to do, then we say we ought to obey God rather than men. But whether a government is is practicing abortion, it doesn't matter one bit. You still owe them your tax dollars. It doesn't matter if your individual FRN actually makes it from your hands to the IRS and then to an abortion doctor. That doesn't matter. God set up that authority. The Romans were guilty of infanticide. The Romans were guilty of killing Christians. But the Bible still said to pay taxes to them. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And what is Caesar's? Taxation. And the Israelites were carrying around his picture on a little coin in their pockets. Because Jesus said, show me the money. Right. I counsel thee to keep the king's commandment, and that in regard to the oath of God. Ecclesiastes 8.2-8.3 8, 8, Be not hasty to go out of his sight. Stand not in an evil thing, for he doeth whatsoever pleaseth him. Verse 4 Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say unto him, what doest thou? Whoso keepeth the commandment shall feel no evil thing. And a wise man's heart discerneth both time and judgment. I've taught through this whole book of Ecclesiastes before and given you much more detail. But if you keep the commandment, you'll feel no evil thing. Do you know what we think? If I submit to a king, he could trample all over me. There's a God in heaven you're forgetting about. You want your wife to submit to you, don't you? And she's worrying that if she submits... You're going to trample all over her. And what advice would you give her? Well, you're going to have to trust the Lord and me. Well, you're going to have to trust the Lord and Him. Whoever Him might be in a position of civil authority. Who's the most despotic king in the Bible? Nebuchadnezzar. What's the only king on earth that God has ever called King of Kings? Or have I already led you to the truth? There's only one. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ, it's King Nebuchadnezzar. Right. Daniel said to him in Daniel 2:37, "King, thou art a king of kings, and he had crushed many kings." God also calls him his servant about 25 times in uh, uh, let's let's say 15 or 20. I can't remember how many. I know it starts in Jeremiah 25. God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant many times. He was truly a great king. The Bible describes a king like a lion. That the roar of a lion that puts fear into the bowels of men is what a king should do when he's in his throne. He should drive away evil with just the look of his face. He should bring his wheel over them and crush those that rebel or those that are criminals. Under his authority, His wrath is described in the Bible as messengers of death, and a wise man will pacify a king. A wise man won't revolt against a king. a wise man won't try to assassinate a king. A wise man won't try to get a democracy in place of a king. A wise man pacifies a king. Proverbs 16:14 and 15. Yielding is the proper response. Look at Proverbs chapter 24 for the tenth time as your pastor. Proverbs 24 verses 21 and 22. This is, this is what causes me to fear for all of us, for me. I have as many temptations in this matter as you do, but Lord help me. I want to honor our present president. I want to pray for him. I want to cheerfully pay taxes to him and render to The IRS, what is the IRS's? God bless the IRS. They still give wonderful benefits to church members like us and pastors like me. We still live in a great nation. Kings and queens, presidents and congress, are our nursing fathers and our nursing mothers. Proverbs 24, verse 21, my son, fear thou the Lord and the king. The wise man puts them right together. Puts the Lord first, but he puts them right together because one represents the other and the one's the ordinance of the other as we read in Romans 13. My son, fear thou the Lord and the King and meddle not with them that are given to change. Those that want to talk about changing government, rebelling against government and all the problems with our government and the so-called corruption in government which they really don't know about. They're just guessing and speculating about. For their calamity, that is a plural pronoun there, their calamity shall rise suddenly, and who knoweth the ruin of them both? Them, too. Those that meddle with those that are given to change. Revolutionaries and those that listen to them. Anarchists and those that read them. Patriots and those that follow them. Meddling with changing government. You have far more important things to be doing with your life than thinking you're going to change our government. You're not going to change our government. And people like you have never changed government. God changes government. He raises up one and puts down another. Promotion cometh from the north. It cometh from the Lord. It doesn't come from the north. It comes from the Lord. This text is serious. Look at their calamity shall rise suddenly. And who knoweth the ruin of them both? That's those who despise government and those who listen, read, talk with them, and think that they're their friends, love to read insider information, although there's nothing inside about it, because the people writing it don't have a classification at all. But of course you can't sell newspapers unless you say it's insider information. This is the Word of the Lord. I've preached it before. The whole earth is shaking right now. The Bible would say its pillars are out of place. The foundations are being destroyed. Governments are being threatened and overthrown. Presidents are abdicating and walking away from their rightful authority that they should enforce. What does the Word of God have to say about all of it? Right. Look at Ecclesiastes 10.20. Ecclesiastes 10.20, Curse not the king, or president, or governor. No, not in thy thought. And curse not the rich in thy bedchamber. Not even in the privacy of your bedroom. For a bird of the air shall carry the voice, and that which hath wings shall tell the matter. Guard your thoughts about our government. Remember Romans chapter 13. The powers that be are ordained of God. To fight against them, you're fighting against the ordinance of God. You'll bring upon yourselves damnation. They bear the sword, not in vain. They're to use that sword. God said in Romans 13:4, they're to use that sword to defend their authority and to put down anybody that rises up against them. And it's a shame that we're watching governments right now quake and tremble. They're trying to buy off their constituents. They're trying to buy off their citizens. The Prince Royal of Saudi Arabia dumped $37 on the people of Saudi Arabia, trying to buy off them from protesting. Now, he put enough police force in the streets over the last 72 hours that they haven't protested. Colonel Gaddafi dropped $400 into every citizen's, every family's bank account, trying to buy them off. Kings don't have to buy off citizens. Kings bear the sword, and a Caesar knows how to bear the sword, and Nebuchadnezzar knew how to bear the sword. I'll chop you in pieces and turn your house into a dunghill. If you don't fall down and worship my golden image because I've had a religious whim over the weekend. Unbelievable authority. You say, but how can a Christian survive under a king like Nebuchadnezzar? They can rise to the very top and be like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. and sit next to the king. That's, why, that's how. And how do they get there? By Daniel helping prosecute the greatest policies the world has seen for the king, Nebuchadnezzar. He helped Babylon be great. Just like Joseph helped Egypt be great. I love the word of God, but let's practice it. I have as much trouble and as much temptation as any one of you. When I see certain pictures or hear certain words or read about certain things being done in Washington or Columbia... Lord, forgive me all of them. I want to be faithful to you, the high king of heaven. And know that you raise up kings and you put down kings. And the kingdom is the Lord's. And he raiseth up over at the basest of men. Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson and wrote about it in Daniel chapter 4. You know, in, Daniel, in Romans chapter 13, it says we ought to obey the Roman government for two things. For wrath and for conscience. Wrath is their wrath. Because if you disobey, they can pull you over. That's what, It says that. There's two reasons why you ought to obey the Roman government. For wrath. They don't bear the sword in vain. They have a right to use it on you. So we obey them for that reason. The second one is conscience. And it's what's described in First Peter chapter 2 as well. That we submit to authority out of conscience toward God. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord. Lord's sake the Lord's sake. 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude have some of the harshest, strongest language in the entire Bible, and it's about those who speak evil of dignities, those who presume against government to think that you have a better idea for running government than they have, for you opening your big mouth and running down people in the office or the office of government. God has something to say to you. He considers you to be a brute beast because you don't know what you're talking about. And he says you are made to be taken and destroyed. You should be put down like a rabid dog. That's what he says in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude chapter 1. He repeats it in both places. Do you know what he brings to bear is his testimony of men greater than you not doing it? There's angels that forget in one second more than you'll learn in a lifetime those angels will not bring a railing accusation against the devil or Adolf Hitler or Mao Zedong or Joseph Stalin or President Obama. They will not bring railing accusations. That means to make fun of him, to mock him, to mimic him, to call him names, to ridicule him. They will not do it. They only know one thing to say, the Lord rebuked thee. They put it in the Lord's hands and that's where we ought to put it. I want to be just like them. Because 2 Peter 2 and Jude chapter 1 tells me to be like them toward kings and those in authority. The language is incredibly harsh in 2 Peter 2 and Jude 1 about your brute beast made to be taken and destroyed if you fight against authority because you don't know what you're talking about. They are dealing with things out of your sight. Why do you think there are levels of classification? Ministers, Aaron and Miriam criticized Moses in Numbers chapter 12. They criticized Moses because he had married an Ethiopian woman. And they said, we don't like his wife. She's not one of us. She's weird. She's different. They criticized Moses. And Aaron and Miriam said, listen, we're just as holy as you are. God should be using us as much as you. Look at that wife you married. All of a sudden, Miriam's face took on a different complexion. The leprosy rose up all over her. And she was a leper from top to bottom. Forgive me about the face because that's King Isaiah that's coming later. She was all leprous. And Aaron cries out to the Lord. And then Moses cries out, you know, Moses was just about the nicest guy that you can read about in the Bible. Amen. How many times did he cry out for Israel for God to have mercy on them? Now his sister is just picking on him for the girl that he married. And as soon as she gets leprosy, what's Moses doing? Do you wonder why he's one of the five intercessors in the Bible? He's always praying for someone and they're usually his enemies. What a man! Right. What, an, what a prayer warrior! What a prayer warrior! She has leprosy. I I wanted you to read this. I had so many chapters to send you last night. Numbers 12 was one of them. She has leprosy all over. Aaron cries out. Moses cries out. And the Lord says, okay, okay. But throw her out of the camp. I want a whole nation to know that she's got leprosy. Yes, I'll take the leprosy away. But throw her out of the camp for seven days. Because if her father had just spit in her face, she'd be out there for seven days. She's made a shame of herself. Now throw her out there. You can bring her in in seven days. You say, what Bible are you reading from? The King James Bible. Have you read it recently? It's what the Bible teaches. She opened her big trapper, her flapper, and said something against her brother. What was her brother's office? The judge and prophet of Israel he never wanted that job. Don't you know how many tried, times he tried to get rid of that job and stay in the backside of the desert with his Ethiopian wife? How about number 16? Korah, Dathan, Abiram, 250 princes of Israel, say we're just as holy as you are, big boy. Why do you put yourself above the people? Moses never put himself above the people. God put him above the people. And those men came and said, we're going to offer incense before the Lord. We don't need you. We're just as holy as you are. And Moses told the Lord, Lord, I've never taken one thing from them or ever done anything to deserve this. He was the meekest man in the face of the earth. Right. And God said, you tell the people of Israel to get away from them because I'm going to do a new thing in the earth. We're going to have a funeral, but we're not going to use the funeral home. We're going to have a burial, but you're not going to dig a hole. So Moses ran among the people and said, get away from all these men and their wives and their children and everything they owned and everyone that worked for them. Get away from them. And and Moses said, if these men die an ordinary death and God has not spoken by me, but if these men die by a new way, then God put me in this office that I never wanted. And the earth opened up her mouth and everything that appertained to them fell down into it, and it closed itself back up again. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, thought he could tell Elijah what to do. He was on his sickbed. He sent his cabinet officials to go inquire of Beelzebub, of Ekron, whether he was going to get off his sickbed or not. But a man in a hairy garment met him. A man with a hairy garment met him, whose name was Elijah, and he said, go tell your Boss, isn't there a God in Israel? Why do you have to go to the Philistines to ask about your health? And so his cabinet officials came back to him. He's on his sick bed. He's lying there. Guy, how are you back so early? This is 2 Kings chapter 1. I enjoy it. How'd you get back so fast? Well, we ran into a man who told us to come back. Well, what did he look like? He was hairy and had a leather girdle. Oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Well, if you look out your window you'll see him sitting there on that hill. Send a captain with his 50. A captain approaches with 50 men. Oh, man of God, get down here because I'm going to take you to the king. If I'm a man of God, big boy, then fire's going to fall out of heaven and burn you and your 50 up. And fire falls and burns 50 men up. Now see, why isn't this in Bible story books? It should be in Bible story books. Why isn't it taught in Sunday school with a flannel graph lesson? Do you know what I'd have done as a little boy? I'd have been more respectful of ministers. Because that's where I'm headed. That was pretty. A ball of fire comes out of heaven and burns up 50 men and their captain. Wise king, some men don't learn quickly, sends the second captain. He wasn't very smart either. He wanted to get another medal. I'm going to bring that man in. Oh, man of God, come down from that hill. If I'm a man of God, then fire is going to fall from heaven and burn you up. And fire fell down and burned up him and his 50. The third one goes out. He's scared to death. He says, oh, man of God, please, please. I've just watched 102 men get burned up, and I don't want to get burned up. Will you please kindly, respectfully, think about coming down with me. Okay. That's a chapter in the Bible. That's a chapter in the Bible. You say, Elijah wasn't a very nice man. Elisha was worse. Let's go to the next chapter. The next chapter. Elisha's going up to Bethel, the house of God. A bunch of children come running out of a city. The Bible tells us they were little children. They came running out of the city and they saw him and they said, Go up, thou bald head! Go up, thou bald head! Elisha turned and looked at them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of them. This is the word of the Lord. I stand by it for every sphere of authority God has given us. The Bible says, Touch not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm. Psalm 105 and verse 15. Abimelech, king of the Philistines, couldn't touch Sarah because she was married to Abraham. Abraham. The great King Isaiah, and God lifted him up mightily and made King Isaiah very great in Judah. He thought he could go in and offer incense before God like the priest did. He tried to go into the temple and the priest said, this does not pertain to thee, O King Isaiah. Now he had all the authority of a king. Now watch, we have king, which we usually put up here, but this time it's God's minister. And it's in the house of God and the king who God made great and it says in the previous verse that God had lifted him up and made him great. His heart got lifted up. And he said, I can offer incense. I don't need you, priests. I want to go in. I don't like you guys getting all the religious attention and religious privileges. I want to go in there with some incense. This does not pertain to thee and they stood in his way. And while the priest stood in his way trying to keep him from going into that temple further, the leprosy rose up in his face. And he ran out of shame for the rest of his life. He was a leper. This is the word of the Lord to all of us about authority. The Bible says that you are to obey them that have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 that your ministers pray for you, and if they have to pray about you with grief, it is not good for you. It is no different than Elijah and Elisha under the New Testament. If a minister has to pray and pray with grief that you are a trouble in the church, it does not work to your profit. It's to your harm. Hebrews 13 and 17. The last example I want to give you, those are the five spheres of authority. We meet parents first. We meet husbands next. We meet masters after that. Then we meet kings. We meet pastors, prophets, priests, bishops. The example of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he a king? Let's talk about the Lord Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth and authority. As a king, what did he do to those who rejected his lordship? The worst tribulation in the history of the world, and there never will be anything on earth happening as bad as it again until the Lord comes. Matthew 24, verse 21. Great tribulation like the world had never seen. He leveled the city of Jerusalem, 1.1 million dead. Jesus told that generation that they would come and encircle that city. They would dig a trench about it and they would lay it level with the ground. They would tear the stones apart from that temple. And Jesus told those that women that followed him up Mount Calvary, he said, don't weep for me. You be weeping for yourselves and for your children for what's coming on this nation because you knew not the time of your visitation. Now, how's that for a king against whom there is no rising up? Amen. They mocked him, they made fun of him, they railroaded him, they extorted and blackmailed poor Pilate into crucifying him. But I remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the perfect example of ever exercising authority, said, fall on me and you'll be broken. If I fall on you, I'll grind you to powder. Is the Lord Jesus Christ a high priest? He is a religious ruler. He does not take kindly to false teachers in his churches. In Revelation chapter 2, he tells that prophetess Jezebel at the church of Thyatira that he's going to cast her and those that commit adultery with her into a bed and kill them. I didn't make that up. Boy, if that's the way my Savior talks, that's the way I'm going to worship him. I'm not him. He is Lord of all. And he is the high priest of his church. And he is the head of his church. And he walks among his churches, the seven golden candlesticks holding the seven stars in his right hand, and he can do with them as he will. And he says to the church at Laodicea, because they were lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. How's that for a prophet like Elisha and Elijah? I'll spew you out of my mouth. I'll rip your candlestick away because you've lost your first love. How does that sound like a possessive (coughs) religious leader? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent! He's the master in heaven, and he tells masters on earth in Colossians chapter 4, 1, you better take care of your servants because you better remember you have a master in heaven. And I want to tell you that the last verse of Colossians chapter 3 says that when it comes to employment matters, whether you're an employee or a master, that God will reward every man for every good thing, and God will reward every man for every evil thing that he does in his way of employment. Jesus is our husband, and he will not tolerate lost love, or flirting with the enemy. He calls us his enemy if we flirt with the, he calls us his enemy if we flirt with the world, which is his enemy. James chapter four and verse four. He is our husband and he is possessive and jealous. And the Bible says that his name is jealous with a capital J. And we owe him everything we have. He is able to tell us and command it that we should love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest king. He's the greatest prophet. He's the greatest priest. He's the head of our church, he's our master, and he's our husband. He's all this authority wrapped into one, and he's very serious about it. And our religion is very serious. It's just not coming in here on Sundays and singing a few songs about Jesus. It's going out and living like he's your king, your husband, your priest, your master. And he is the everlasting father, according to Isaiah 9 and verse 6. And do you know what he chooses to be a father to us? He chooses a scourge, and that's his choice of words. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 9, he scourgeth every one whom he receiveth. Why would he pick that word? Why would he use that word? Yes, it says Jesus wept. In John chapter 11 and verse 35. And in Hebrews chapter 12, the Apostle Paul wants you to know that when he comes after you, he's going to come after you with a scourge. A scourge, a wooden handle, nine leather thongs, bits of metal woven into it, tear your back open with 40, 30, with 40 blows, it would leave your internal organs visible. Scourge. It's not a little spank. That's what He does to those He loves. What does He do to those He doesn't love? He comes from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right. What do we do? If we're under authority, let's love the office love the person, humble ourselves to it, be thankful for it, pray for them, and defend them to others who might be rebellious and cantankerous toward them. If we're in authority, let's execute our office as well as possible, and let's have a combination of mercy and truth so that we are glorious in our going as pastors, parents, husbands. We can do these things, and we should. And we should look to the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Him as our King, And submit to Him. If you're fearful of our government in Washington, you have a king on Mount Zion that's going to take care of you. If you're fearful of your boss at work because he doesn't keep his promises, he's mean, cruel, and a liar, you've got a master in heaven that's going to take care of him and you. If you're a wife and your husband doesn't give you everything that you need, you have a husband in heaven who can give you more than you need. He can satisfy your soul completely. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a child and you're worried about your parents, and your parents have faults, as which all of us do, you have a Father in Heaven that has none. Put your trust in Him. He'll take care of you. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word for us to exalt and obey authority the way we should, and for us to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and adorn the doctrine of God by the way we react and submit to the five spheres of authority. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. Amen.